0: Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Usher's Program Notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, May 5th through Saturday, the 7th, feature Ricardo Muti directing a program of Beethoven, the Egmont Overture, and Symphony No. 4, and after intermission, a pair of first performances for the orchestra, Mother and Child by William Grant Still and Florence Price's Symphony No. 3. Here are program notes on Beethoven's Fourth Symphony, a work lasting about 32 minutes. Generations of music lovers have described and sometimes dismissed Beethoven's even-numbered symphonies as lyrical and relaxed compared to their spunky, coltish odd-numbered neighbors. The fourth in B-flat major has suffered from that fate perhaps more than any. Not long after Beethoven's death, Robert Schumann called it a slender Grecian maiden between two Nordic giants. And at the end of the 19th century, George Grove, the Grove of the celebrated Dictionary of Music and Musicians, commented that this symphony is a complete contrast to both its predecessor and successor, and is as gay and spontaneous as they are serious and lofty. Grove thought that this accounted for the fact that it had not yet had justice done it by the public, And as Grove might have predicted, in our own time, the Chicago Symphony has played the third and fifth symphonies with much greater regularity. Schumann was perhaps the first musician to warn us not to overlook the fourth's own special qualities. Do not illustrate his genius with the ninth symphony alone, no matter how great its audacity and scope never uttered in any tongue. You can do as much with his first symphony or with the Greek-like slender one in B-flat major. Beethoven began his B-flat major symphony in the summer of 1806 when he retired to the country estate of Prince Karl von Luchowski, one of the most devoted of the composer's early admirers. This score, as well as the 4th Piano Concerto and the Violin Concerto, all completed late in 1806, interrupted work on his 5th symphony. These three works, often characterized as unexpectedly spacious and relaxed, do suggest that Beethoven was catching his breath before returning to the heroic, titanic struggles of the Fifth Symphony. But they do not mark a shift in his direction. In fact, ideas for the violin concerto and the Fifth Symphony exist side by side in his sketchbooks. We need only listen to the opening pages of the Fourth Symphony to understand that it was written in the midst of Beethoven's work on the Fifth and that it is, in fact, more its companion than its antithesis. Beethoven begins with a slow introduction of deep darkness and suspense, not in B-flat major, as the key signature promises, but B-flat minor. And, like the opening of the Fifth Symphony, it starts with a series of descending thirds, Beethoven is unusually stingy with notes and hesitant to get moving. The spareness of this passage provoked Weber's scorn, and the symphony seems at first to be stuck in slow motion, which makes the sudden arrival of lively music in the proper key all the more startling. The Allegro Vivace is full of activity and unexpected dynamic contrast. It's playful and witty, but also dramatic. As Beethoven approaches the recapitulation, he suddenly drops down to a pianissimo and coaxes the music back to life over the ominous roll of the timpani. This movement may be less serious and lofty, to use Groves' words, than the corresponding one in the fifth, and it is certainly lighter in tone, but it is far from lightweight. In terms of economy and tightly coiled energy, it is every bit the equal of its more familiar counterpart. The second movement is a graceful and expansive song. The cantabile, singing marking, is especially apt, made particularly memorable by a restless, insistent accompaniment that refuses to remain quietly in the background. Schumann, one of the symphony's first great admirers, found the effect unexpectedly humorous, a veritable falstaff, in particular when occurring in the bass or the timpani. For the first time in his career, Beethoven enlarges the floor plan of the third movement in order to bring back the trio a second time. Ever economical, he then cuts short the ensuing third statement of the scherzo with an unmistakable rejoinder from the horns. The finale is a brilliant exercise in movement and contrast worthy of Haydn in earthly humor and high spirits. It is neither spectacular nor heroic and does not call attention to itself like some of the more famous Beethoven finales, but brings this symphony to a perfect conclusion. Program Notes by Philip Husher on Beethoven's Symphony No. 4 And now on to Florence Price's Symphony No. 3, a work lasting about 30 minutes. In 2009, a couple bought an old house outside of Chicago. In the attic, they found boxes filled with yellowed sheets of paper. Every piece was written by the same woman, Florence Price. Who is Florence Price? they wondered. This question, posed in these opening lines of a new children's book, is one the entire music world has been asking in recent years. The old dilapidated house sits in St. Anne, a tiny community little more than an hour south of Chicago in Kankakee County. This had been Florence Price's summer house, long ago abandoned. The couple, the Gatwoods, were planning to renovate... Their discovery jump-started the renaissance of one of this country's important musical figures, a black woman composer with strong ties to Chicago and to the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, whose music had long been overlooked, neglected, and dismissed. Florence Price had moved to Chicago with her family in 1927, making the Great Migration, followed by thousands of black Americans fleeing the terrors of living in the South and hoping to find a land of opportunity in Chicago. When she grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, her father, Dr. James H. Smith, a prosperous dentist, was one of Little Rock's most highly respected black men. The governor was rumored to be his secret patient. But Florence already saw herself as part of a larger musical world. In 1903, she began studies at the New England Conservatory of Music in Boston, completing the four-year program in three years and graduating with diplomas in both piano and organ, the only student to receive two degrees that year. After graduation, Florence set aside her musical ambitions. She returned to Little Rock to teach and lived at home with her parents. After her father died in 1910, Florence's mother, who was of mixed race, sold all the family possessions, chose to pass for white, moved back to her hometown of Indianapolis, and vanished into the society of the majority. Florence moved from one teaching job to another, continued to give organ and piano recitals, married Thomas Jewel Price, the attorney who had helped settle Dr. Smith's estate, started a family, and settled into a comfortable middle-class life in a predominantly black neighborhood in Little Rock. Aside from the song she wrote after the birth of her first child, To My Little Son, she rarely found the time to compose anything. But she did not give up. She spent the summers of 1926 and 1927 in Chicago, where she studied composition at Chicago Musical College and no doubt realized that this was the place to build her career and live a better life, remote from the rising racial tension in Little Rock and the attacks and crimes and lynchings that had begun to spread throughout the city, sweeping into her family's own neighborhood. Her arrival in Chicago placed her on the cusp of the black Chicago Renaissance. But even in Chicago, composing music did not come easily. After the Depression, her husband was often without work. He grew angry and abusive. He moved out of the family house in March 1930. The next January, Florence was granted a divorce and custody of their two daughters— By then, she had begun to write music on a larger scale, reflecting a new certainty that composing was her calling. In January 1931, Price began the score that would change her life, a symphony in E minor, her first big orchestral piece. She worked on the score for much of the year, a broken foot gave her a bonus of uninterrupted time to compose. Sometimes, to make ends meet, she accompanied silent films on the organ in movie houses along The Stroll, a stretch of South State Street between 26th and 39th Streets, the heart of Chicago's black community. As she struggled to put her life back together and become the composer she wanted to be in a world that viewed her through a prism of fierce prejudices, she cannot have dreamed that the most unlikely thing would happen— that Frederick Stock and the Chicago Symphony would give the world premiere of her symphony at the 1933 World's Fair, the Century of Progress Exposition. In February 1932, Price entered four of her new works in the Rodman Wanamaker Competition, named for the department store owner, and established five years earlier to support African-American composers. Price's symphony took the $500 first prize in the orchestral category. Her tone poem, Ethiopia's Shadow in America, received honorable mention. That same year, Stock was named music advisor for the exposition set in Chicago to honor the city's centennial, and he began to look around for new scores that would represent the state of music in America. Chicago's talent first and American talent second, he said. European representation will be drastically limited. Although Stock did not know Price, he picked her unpublished First Symphony as the centerpiece of a concert to be given on June 15, 1933, in the Auditorium Theatre. We've since learned that Maud Roberts George, president of the Chicago Music Association and a critic for the Chicago Defender, raised the funds to underwrite the cost of the concert. Despite the excitement and the applause that night, No one at the time entirely recognized the history book significance of the occasion. This was the first performance of a large-scale composition by a black woman composer given by one of the major U.S. orchestras. It is a faultless work, a work that speaks its own message with restraint and yet with passion, the critic for the Chicago Daily News wrote, worthy of a place in the regular symphonic repertory. More telling was the reception in the black press. No one could have sat through that program and not felt with a sense of deep satisfaction that the race is making progress in music, wrote Robert Abbott, editor of the Chicago Defender, arguably the most important and most widely read black publication in America at the time. First, there was a feeling of awe as the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, an aggregation of master musicians of the white race and directed by Dr. Frederick Stock, internationally known conductor, swung in to the beautiful, harmonious strains of a composition by a race woman. In the same paper, Nahum Daniel Brasher wrote, It is the beginning of a new era for us in the world of music. Dressed in a long white gown, Price was called to the stage again and again after the performance to share the enthusiastic response with stock and the orchestra members. It was a startlingly unfamiliar sight, a lone black woman in an all-white, all-male community, the image perfectly symbolizing the singularity of black success in the blinding whiteness of the mainstream classical music world. Six months after the premiere, Price ran into Stock on Michigan Avenue. They stopped to talk. He agreed to let her sit in on some Chicago Symphony rehearsals. Two days later, she heard Artur Schnabel and Stock prepare Beethoven's Fourth Piano Concerto, and he encouraged her to continue work on her new piano concerto. But he did not program it or any of Price's other works. Her subsequent appeals to Serge Kusevitsky, music director of the Boston Symphony and a well-known champion of new music, are now classics in the long history of composers cast aside because of their color or gender. She wrote him seven times, beginning in 1935, making the case for her symphonies. To begin with, she wrote in a long letter on July 5, 1943, I have two handicaps, those of sex and race. I am a woman and I have some negro blood in my veins. I should like to be judged on merit alone. In another, Unfortunately, the work of a woman composer is preconceived by many to be light, froth, lacking in depth, logic, and virility, she said. Add to that the incident of race. I have colored blood in my veins, and you will understand some of the difficulties that confront one in such a position. She received two responses from Kusevitsky's secretary. In 1944, Kusevitsky finally looked at one of Price's scores, but he never conducted any of her music. Early in 1951, Price received a telegram from Sir John Barbaroli, who had heard about her during his time as music director of the New York Philharmonic, asking her to write a concert overture or a suite based on black American spirituals that he could play with his current orchestra, the Halle Orchestra, in Manchester, England. Price did write an overture. The score is now lost. And Barbaroli premiered it in the spring of 1951. But Price was in the hospital at the time for an extended stay and could not travel to hear it. She died of a stroke in Chicago two years later. During the time Jean Martinon was music director of the Chicago Symphony in the mid-60s, his office asked Price's daughter to send some of her mother's scores, including the Third Symphony, to Orchestra Hall for Martinon's consideration. But none of them were programmed. In 1964, an elementary school on South Drexel Boulevard in North Kenwood, near Price's old neighborhood, was named for her. But in 2011, Chicago public school officials closed Florence B. Price Elementary after four years of chronic poor performance on state standardized tests. The manuscripts, discovered in St. Anne, contained many lost works, including two violin concertos and a fourth symphony, music that came painfully close to vanishing forever. The Chicago Symphony did not play another note of Price's music until May 2013 when it programmed her Mississippi River Suite. Ricardo Muti originally planned to give the first Chicago performances of Price's Third Symphony in Orchestra Hall in the spring of 2020, but those concerts were among the first to be canceled in the pandemic. This week's performances of the Third Symphony, 89 years after the orchestra unveiled her first symphony, her second is lost aside from a single page, offer perhaps the most richly developed product of Price's full talent too long silenced. Price completed her third symphony in 1940, nearly a decade after the first, and the same year as the publication of Richard Wright's powerful and harshly realistic novel, Native Son, set amid the poverty of Chicago's South Side. It's also the year Hattie McDaniel was given an Academy Award for her performance in the demeaning, stereotypical role of Mammy in Gone with the Wind. Price said that her symphony was intended to be Negroid in Character in Expression, In other words, its roots lie deep. It is not merely a European symphony decorated with borrowed melodies. No attempt, she wrote, has been made to project Negro music solely in the purely traditional manner. None of the themes are adaptations or derivations of folk songs. The intention behind the writing of this work was a not-too-deliberate attempt to picture a cross-section of present-day Negro life and thought with its heritage of that which is past paralleled or influenced by concepts of the present day. Price's Third Symphony, then, is truly a New World Symphony. As in the old European model, including Dvorak's long-famous New World Symphony of 1893, there are four movements in the familiar sequence, a broad and vigorous opening allegro in sonata form, a slow movement, a dance-like scherzo, and a big rousing finale. But the material they are made from, the colors of their harmonies, the cut of their melodies, the sonorities of the instrumental combinations often come from a different world. The Third Symphony marks an advance over the score Stock introduced. Price is here writing for a larger orchestra than before, with a particularly active percussion section, and she shows a more highly refined sense of instrumental color. The music is as richly melodic as in her earlier scores, but Price's harmonies have grown more complex, even tonally ambiguous. The slow second movement is rooted in a kind of call-and-response use of antiphonal choirs of instruments, with a suggestion of an Amen cadence at the end. For the third movement, where Mozart wrote minuets and Beethoven composed scherzos, Price writes Juba, based on the syncopations of Patton Juba the sort of slave fiddler and banjo player music Solomon Northrop describes in his 1853 autobiography, Twelve Years a Slave. The patting is performed by striking the hands on the knees, then striking the hands together, then striking the right shoulder with one hand, the left with the other, all the while keeping time with the feet and singing. The finale is more conventional, but no less stirring. In one of her letters to Kusevitsky, this one from the autumn of 1941, Price tries to find convincing words for her distinctive music and her very modern understanding of black music's consequential and essential place in American life and culture. She writes, I have a symphony in which I have tried to portray a cross-section of Negro life and psychology as it is today, Influenced by the urban life north of the Mason Dixon line. It is not program music. I merely had in mind the life and music of the Negro of today, and for that reason treated my themes in a manner different from what I would have if I had centered my attention upon the religious themes of antebellum days, or yet the ragtime and jazz which followed, rather a fusion of these colored by present cultural influences. Today, It appears that her time has come at last. Program notes by Philip Usher on Florence Price's Symphony No. 3. And a footnote, Who is Florence Price? The book written and illustrated by students of the Special Music School at Kaufman Music Center in New York City with an introduction by Jesse Montgomery. The Chicago Symphony Orchestra's Mead composer-in-residence was published last year by Shermer Trade Books and copies are available in the Symphony Store. I'm Richard Caparella. Thanks for listening.